It's wonderful to be here with you. I want to greet those of you that are watching uh, online as well. You're part of this gathering and our time of worship together. Uh, it's special to get to share Palm uh, Sunday with you as well. And uh, I was thinking as I was sitting there rehearsing again an, an incident that, we, that happened at uh, the church that I was working with um, a number of years ago on a Palm Sunday. I wanted so much to... Uh, have us enter in a little bit more to this idea that people are indeed uh, talking a lot about Jesus and thinking a lot about Jesus, more than we might think that they are. And uh, so my, my brainstorm was, let's, let's get some people who aren't convinced that Jesus really is the answer, and let's get them to talk to those of us who are. Uh, great idea, little hard to pull off in a, in a service, right? I'm not going to go get my neighbors and come in. That just is too risky. I wouldn't invite someone else to bring their friends to sit up on a platform of a church for the first time and address the rest of the church. So we didn't know how we were going to do it, so we advertised it on, on uh, Craigslist. We just said we need people who aren't convinced that Jesus is the answer to come talk to people who are. And we interviewed a number of folks that that uh, signed up, and we actually brought four of them uh, together, and through in each of our services, they sat there, and they let me ask them questions about where they were. One of the amazing things was that three of the four people, amazing to me and amazing back then, maybe not as amazing anymore, uh, was that three of them had never been in a church before. They had never been in a church, these were adults, never been in a church before. And, and I didn't see that one coming, so I, I asked him a question that wasn't scripted. I, I said, what do you think the reason is for that? I mean, did you have a disciplined sort of, I'm not going to go to a church, a bad experience with someone that was a Christian? In all three of the cases, their response was simply this, I, I just was never invited. Nobody ever asked me if I wanted to go with them. No family member, no friend, uh, just no invitation. And so I just didn't make it on their radar. I'm excited that you guys are emphasizing bringing people, inviting them to come be a part of this. The second thing that was so um, uh, enlightening to me was the fact that um, all of them there had some very thoughtful things to say about their perspective on who Jesus was. This wasn't the first time they were thinking about him. It wasn't the first time they interacted with his claims, even those who had not been in a church setting ever before. So that's what I want to do with you for the next few minutes as we again stand on the threshold of this special week, this Easter week. I want us to think and consider Jesus for a few minutes. I've been rehearsing my childhood for some reason a lot more lately. Maybe it's because I'm closer to my second. But uh, in, in my rehearsal of my childhood, I was reminded of the first time that Jesus kind of made it on to my radar. I was a, uh, big into superheroes as a kid, a lot of comic books, a lot of uh, bobbleheads, and as we talked about in our pre-service devotions, that it was all about the power that each of these superheroes sort of brought to bear in their lives. And so when we would get together in the neighborhood, we would play uh, superheroes as I, as, as I was a boy. My third favorite superhero, since you asked, was Spider-Man. Spider-Man was um, awesome. Spidey's awesome. The Spidey sense and the, his agility and his quickness, all that stuff was really cool. Been around for about 60 years, if 
this August. And Spidey was awesome, but he was only number three on my list. Number two was Batman. And Batman, if you ever bought a Batman as a kid, you were stuck because there were so many accessories you had to get. Because Batman wasn't such a powerful guy as much as he was had really impressive stuff, right? And so he could drive into that Batcave where all his stuff was kept, and Batman was pretty cool. 83 years Batman's been in, in our culture. But in my neighborhood, when we would get together to play, everybody wanted to be my number one. And the way we would sort of decide who got to do that is we would have a race. And the first person to cross the finish line got to choose first. And every time the first person that crossed the finish line said, I'm Superman. I get to be Superman. Now, I was always a slow, chunky kid. And so by the time I made it across the finish line, they would say, you, you, you get to be Aquaman. That's the only one, that's the only one left. You know, what do you do as Aquaman? You can't summon a pot of whales to the neighborhood, right? <laughs> so everybody wanted to be Superman. He could do things. He was strong. He could fly. All the things that, that sort of transcend life. Even had breath that could, could move things. I could repel people with my breath. But other, <laughs> but other than that, this was somebody that we all wanted to aspire to. 90 years Superman has been in our, in our culture. Like I say, that was about the time Jesus started showing up and became someone to consider. Granted, he's been around for a lot longer than my other superheroes, um, but every picture I saw of him, he was wearing what looked like a, a bathrobe, and, and he, uh, would, we had stories about him making sick people well, and he would feed people if they were hungry, and he would walk on water, but for no apparent reason. There seemed to be things that happened around his life, but he didn't fit the superhero mold. Talked about forgiving your enemies, not blowing them up. He, he had this, this approach that, that didn't resonate with a young boy looking for power and looking for, for strength. And, and of course, over the years, my views around Jesus have changed. Perhaps yours have as well. When I got into my teenage years, uh, for, for a host of different reasons, I began to see Jesus differently. I actually began to see him as the reason I couldn't go to parties. That he was sort of the, the, the source of all rules in, in my life that I had to follow. And it really wasn't until my late teenage years that I began to discover uh, who Jesus was. This morning, I want to ask you a simple question, and then we'll linger over a few passages of God's Word today. How do you see Jesus? How does he show up to you? Now, that's different than what do you believe about him or what do you believe about what he did? My question for us this morning is, is how do you see him? A.W. Tozier wrote um, a classic book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and in it, he makes this statement. What comes to our minds <clears throat> when we think about Jesus, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. And, and in addition, I think I would add uh, this statement. What comes to our mind when we think about what Jesus thinks about us will determine a great deal of how we live our lives. So this morning, on the threshold of Easter week once again, I want us to consider for a few moments who is Jesus, who he really is, what ignites him, what is he most naturally? What's his Enneagram? 
number, if you're into Enneagram. What, what's at the core of, of Jesus? And there's only one place that I can find where Jesus speaks to this question and answers it for us. You know, in the New Testament, there are four books that describe the life and the teachings of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. There are 89 chapters, a lot of words. And in all of that, there are a lot of stories about what Jesus did and what He taught. But there's only one place that I can find where He describes who He is at His very core. What His heart is. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And let me read these words and have us... Think about them for a few minutes. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we know when someone talks about their heart, they're not usually talking about a part of their body, right? They're talking about what is sort of basic core of, of who they are. And when Jesus does that here, we don't read Him saying, know my heart, it is exacting and demanding. I'm exacting and demanding of heart. We, we don't read, I am exalted and holy of heart. We don't even read, I am generous and sacrificial of heart. Instead, we read, I am gentle and humble in heart. He tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him to the core. Now, I'm indebted here to Dane Ortland, uh, an author who has written a book on this particular passage of Scripture. And, and in it, he helps us get more comfortable with what these words are that Jesus is using to describe his heart. The first word is gentle. It's the same Greek word that we get, that often gets translated meek. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm meek. It's the opposite of being harsh. It carries the idea of not being easily exasperated. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not edgy. The posture most natural to Jesus is that of gentleness, that of open arms, not a pointed finger. He's gentle. How does that fit with your view of Jesus? It says he's humble and lowly. And Dr. Ortland says about that, that these are sort of overlapping words, gentle and humble and or lowly, some of your translations will use, and it's speaking to a condition rather than an attitude. It's speaking to the, a condition of his heart rather than an attitude of it. And it's describing Jesus as accessible. He's lowly. He comes down. He, he's approachable. He's accessible. And, and, and so look where, what it says, he's, who he's accessible to. To all who are weary and burdened. Not to all of those who've laid off enough of their stuff to be able to kind of slowly with head hanging make their way to him. But all who are weary and burdened. We're not told to unburden ourselves before we come to him. 
Jesus declares for you that you will find rest. And His desire to give you rest is even greater than yours to have it. So, just for a moment, if you were asked to give an elevator pitch for who is Jesus at His core, this Jesus that you follow, who, who is He? You could do no better than to say He is gentle. He's not easily exasperated with us. He's humble. He's accessible. Now, that's not all He is. But it, it's, it's what He is at His core. It's what gets Him out of bed in the morning. So, we have to consider how this reality speaks to some of the attitudes that we kind of smuggle in about Jesus. Why we sort of picture Him letting us come to Him, but kind of holds His nose as we do. Or His face is kind of contorted like someone touching a snail for the first time. There's just this sense of, okay, all right, you can come. Now, we would expect, if indeed this is who Jesus is, that it would show up in what He does. In, in, throughout the Gospels, throughout the four, first four books of the New Testament, we see time and time again this heart sort of flow out of Jesus. We see it in Mark 2 where the leper comes to him and, and, and asks to be cleansed. And Jesus says, move with compassion, filled with compassion, reached out and he touched the leper and he healed the leper. Or we see it in an incident where these friends were so concerned about a friend of theirs who was paralyzed. They heard Jesus was nearby. They brought their paralyzed friend. And before they could even ask Jesus to to heal him. Jesus does because he was moved out of his heart with compassion. His heart was moved towards crowds and it was moved towards individuals. The hungry and the weak. He wept over cities and he wept over individuals. The inexcusable and the undeserving. Those were the ones Jesus gravitated towards. As a result, he was labeled what? A friend of sinners. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Yes, but that's not all that Jesus did. He had a lot of teaching, a lot of harsh words. And that's true. But if you were raised at all in a, in a rules environment like I was, at least so many rules that surrounded Jesus, um, we, we may have some work to do in really understanding the core of who He is. I remember being told by a youth pastor of the church that I attended, um, sort of in this vein, you know, Jesus is coming back and you don't want to have you in the back seat of a car with a girl, right? So that, that's what's on Jesus' mind. And Nellie, I would never have considered being in the back seat of a car with a girl. I just want you to know that. But, but sort of that was how Jesus got delivered and, and, and packaged. It's simply undeniable that the heart of Jesus is most deeply seen in his acts of compassion. And the word compassion is a great word if you want to learn to say it, splognizo. How about that? Splognizo is to, to be compassionate. And it's different than empathy. Empathy is I can feel what you're feeling. You burn your finger and I wince. But compassion is so much deeper. It's, it's a desire to help another person. It's, it's churning so much internally that you want to do something for the other person. And that's what's happening in the heart of Jesus. And the stories of Him acting out of this longing 
are disproportionately high throughout the Gospels. It's undeniable. So I have come to believe, came to it a little later in life, that it's impossible to overemphasize or to make too much of this compassionate, affectionate heart of Jesus. And so that was then, and this is now. Many of us have read stories in the gospel, wishing I could have been there. I wish I could have been closer to Jesus. I maybe would, would have caught some of this better. We can only wish that we were a part of all that. So let's get out of the gospels for just a moment, and let's look and see where is Jesus now, and, and what is he doing now with that heart of compassion and, and that heart of gentleness towards us. And in Hebrews chapter 5, we have a description of Jesus ascending back into heaven, sitting down at the right hand of God, where it says that he now takes on this role of the great high priest. Now, we don't have much to compare priests to. Um, in, in the Bible times, there was a king, and his role was to represent God to the people, and a priest's job was to represent the people to God. And Scripture tells us that Jesus is in this function before God on behalf of us. And in Hebrews 5.12, we read this. He is able, as this priest, to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. There it is again. There's that gentle heart of, of Jesus. Who does he deal gently with? The wayward, the, the ignorant. These aren't two sort of classes of lesser sins. Most would say that this is actually a description that's intended to include all of those people who sin, all of us who go our own ways. We all come to Him with an offense, and Jesus deals gently and only gently with us when we do. It's not the severity of the sin that elicits His tenderness but the fact that we turn to Him. So here's what's true. Jesus is siding with you against your sin. Not with your sin against you. He sides with you against your sin. Not against you because of your sin. Look at two things He's doing. Hebrews 7.25 We read, He always lives to make intercession for us. So one of the things he's doing right now is he's interceding. What does that mean? We don't use that word that often. It's the idea of coming between two parties and bringing them together. It's, it's akin to a sports agent who is meeting with the franchise on behalf of an athlete, who there is this sense where Jesus is doing that each day and every day for us. Imagine getting up in, your mo in the morning with a cup of coffee and hearing the Lord Jesus praying for you in the other room. Could anything move you more deeply to be at peace? And John, 1 John 2.1, we read another thing he's doing. We read that he, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is uh, speaking on our behalf. An intercession is something he is doing and always doing. Advocating is something he does on an occasion as needed. And what Jesus did on earth, Scripture tells us he's now doing in heaven on our behalf. So we, we come to Easter week. We know in a few days will be Good Friday. Really the high water mark 
of love expressed in, in this world. For some of us, some of you, maybe it's difficult to let him really love you. I mean, really let it settle deep in your heart. St. Augustine pointed out long ago that the opposite of love is pride. Hmm. And, and shame and its close neighbor sort of mount in our lives and as a result we keep our distance from him. I do. And that's why, as Silver said in her story, that's why Jesus points to, to children. That's why he says, be like them. God reveals to the heart of a child how he wants to be received. He keeps it from the learned and the wise. We're blessed, Nellie and I, to have three kids and five grandkids. And it's been my conviction for a long time that every one of us needs uh, someone in our, in our lives who is irrationally in love with us. And so, so I get to be that. Did not see that coming. Yeah, I get to be that for our grandkids. You know, no better job description as far as I'm concerned for, uh, for a grandpa. And our, uh, our six-year-old uh, grandson, Eli, had his, his birthday this last week. And so we had him over to the house. And in a, in a minute where he and I got to sit just alone, just the uh, two of us with all the other stuff going on, um, I just said to him, Eli, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad I get to be your grandpa. There is nothing about you that I don't like. There is nothing Nothing that you can do to make me love you anymore. And Eli's our little, I don't know, he's just, he's just a sweet kid. And as I'm sharing these things with him, he, he leans just a little closer. And he makes this barely audible noise. He just goes, mm, mm. It's just drinking that in. Nellie and I have wanted our kids and now our grandkids when they go out into the world to be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that what's wrong about them, what's broken, what's sinful even, that that repels Jesus. That somehow our acts of obedience add to His love. They don't. They let us walk more freely in it but they add nothing to it. So Jesus came and all would argue changed our world. He separates B.C. from A.D. Our iPhones are set somehow to the life of this one. But with Him all the all the greatness can sort of keep us from a distance if we're not careful. We can tend to think of his love um, as infected with disappointment. That we, we come to him, but we do so with drooping shoulders. His heart was gentle and lowly when we first turned to him, if we have, and it remains that way still. 
So the question I would ask you this morning is, as you consider Jesus again this Easter season, will you let him love you the way he wants to love you? What does it look like to receive love? We got the model of Eli, or maybe just consider every child, when they're brought into this world, somebody cares for them, somebody feeds them, somebody nurtures them, somebody smiles at them, somebody makes them comfortable, and the child associates those loving acts with the giver, and that's how attachment forms. A child has the ability to absorb acts of love and care. But when we get older, we get a little more calloused and cynical and find it more difficult to absorb God's acts of love for us. We just do. But God demonstrated His love for us at just the right time, Scripture tells us. Richard Foster tells the story of a father in a grocery store with his young son who was having a meltdown. Been there. And somebody overhears the father saying, you're doing so well, Teddy. I'm so proud of you, Teddy. You can do it, Teddy. A woman overhears this exchange and says to the father, you are so patient with your son, Teddy. And he said, no, I'm Teddy. My, my, my son's Justin. <laughs> and so... Yeah. So the father continues to shop. He continues to finish the task in front of him. But as he does, apparently in an inspired moment, he begins to sing a song over his son. It's a a song of delight and a song of of blessing. And, And I know he was making it up on the spot. He had to be. He just sang, I'm so glad you're my son. I'm so glad get to be your father. I'm so glad for who you are. I love your face and I love when you smile. I love that I get to be with you. I love that I get to be your dad. As this father sang this song, uh, the boy sort of quieted down. His eyes got real big and his body got real still and he stayed that way all the way out to the car seat. And once his dad had buckled him in, He raised his arms towards his daddy and he said, Sing it again, Dad. Sing it again. Here's some good news. If you're on this journey of letting God love you as He wants to love you, that you can do it out of an act of your will. You're not waiting for a feeling for it to happen. You can choose to let God love you right now. I want to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And as Mark mentioned before, sometimes actually in our posture, we can welcome God's voice into our lives. So if you're comfortable, you can open your hands towards God, lay them in your lap. And consider this, you are are loved by God. You are deeply loved by God. You are personally loved by God. What makes you 
cringe the most makes him hug the hardest. His love for you is not calculating. It's not transactional. It's not infected with disappointment. Your haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing that he wants to love you through. The offer of the gospel, the good news, is not that we're given a thing, but that we're given a person. And he is gentle, full of compassion, and accessible. Lord, it's likely that all of us will weep with relief when one day we stand before you, shocked at how inadequate our view was of your mercy-rich heart. Give us the ability to see and absorb the acts of your love. For it's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.